You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker. And every episode, we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that cross-indicated with the coronavirus, makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity? We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. This is a particularly apt moment for this holiday because at this time of recording, it's April 10th, 2020, during the Jewish holiday of Passover, which celebrates liberation of an oppressed and exploited minority group from a repressive system. A series of terrible plagues beset that society, undermined the power of the dictator, and helped to force the liberation of the slaves. The holiday is more generally about liberation from being crushed into Mitzrayim, or narrow places with little room to maneuver, which evokes the plight of many of our most discriminated against today. We're very honored and pleased to have as our guest expert today, Merith Bezi. Uh, Merith's commitment to health equity and justice began unconventionally via her love of language and Latin America. She spent several years leading Ayuda, focused on growing youth-led programs for type 1 diabetes communities across Latin America and the Caribbean. After a master's degree at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and disheartened by a lack of global action around access to insulin, she was inspired to co-found the 100 campaign in 2012 with a small team of advocates aimed at reframing insulin access as a human rights issue and reducing the barriers to access. Since 2014, Merith has been responsible for guiding UAEM's advocacy efforts at over 50 universities in North America and beyond, working to make publicly funded medicine affordable. She is motivated about growing the access to medicines movement through building connections and emphasizing the connectedness to other social justice causes from criminal justice to access to arts education. And in another lifetime, she would have loved to have been a stage actor. It's fantastic, and I really appreciate that last part. Personally, Merith, we're so pleased to have you on The Plague. Thank you. Thank you for um, having me. Thrilled to be here. It's wonderful. Now, I, I, we know about your excellent work in terms of access to medicine and, and, and health care. And what is the social plague that we're going to be looking at today? And, and what are we grappling with? So... We're, I mean, we're, we're living this every day right now, obviously, with uh, the coronavirus, but um, which is a symptom of this problem. But the problem is really our profit-driven biomedical research and development system. So the system that we currently use to uh, research and develop uh, all new medicines, um, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's our primary challenge. Mm-hmm. What what's causing the problem there? I mean, a, a corporate person would say, "Well, that's the profit motive that gets us going and gets us motivated to uh, to develop these medicines." Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, capitalism has its challenges, as we mm-hmm. we we see right now uh, mm-hmm. with this issue. I think not just here and around the world, but uh, particularly when applied to essential medicines. Right? It's not like a an iPhone or um, some other commodity. If you need insulin, if you need access to a life-saving treatment, um, it, it, is, it is not something that uh, should have a price that people can't afford, is basically mm-hmm. the bottom line, and uh, coming from a sort of lens of health as a human right. And basically, right. like with COVID right now, um, it's really shed light on what the access to medicines movement has known for for more than 20 years, really sort of starting in the HIV and AIDS movement um, in the late 80s, early 90s, when there weren't even 
any medicines for people living with HIV. Um, right. And that was that was really the beginning of this um, and recognizing that that challenge. Right. And I know uh, ACT UP uh, as a direct action, creative direct action movement was able to imp- actually affect policy of politicians and corporations. Yeah. And it's, they were an extraordinarily key um, group of activists at that time and still continue today and are, and are actually mm-hmm. very involved in a lot of the activism right now around um, ensuring access um, to uh, treatment currently as well and have focused on different um, drugs and, and diseases like TB and things as well over the last 30 years. So they're, they're still around. Um, and yeah, the ACT UP mm-hmm. it was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power um, mm-hmm. that many will recognize. Absolutely. I do remember one of their actions being um, infamously uh, putting a huge condom over Senator Jesse Helms' house yes. while he was away. <laughs> yeah, that one that one sticks out and uh, it had mm-hmm. impact and people remember it still today. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, obviously no no houses were, were harmed <laughs> during that Quite process. Quite the opposite. They yeah. were protected, if <laughs> exactly. I may. Yeah. Exactly. They were, they, were, they were safe as a result. But those images and, um, you know, we are... And we'll come to this a little later, um, mm-hmm. but I think, right. um, you know, ac- access to medicines activists um, have have been trying to draw attention to this issue for a long time. Um, well, how does how does the the, the corporate model uh, and the profit driven biomedical research system how does it distort the efficient processing of dealing with horrible uh, diseases of various kinds. Sure. So if you, I mm-hmm. mean, there's a few different ways. So I think there's a lot of myths as well that the, the pharmaceutical uh, corporations would have us believe, which is part of the challenge. Um, so yes, they do make medicines, but who funds most of that research in the first place? And if you start with just the U.S. alone, um, Every year, uh, around 40 billion U.S. dollars of taxpayer money uh, goes in the form of grants from the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH, um, and Bethesda, um, to over 2,500 universities uh, in pretty much every state and in a number of different countries around the world, and um, many um, uh, medical schools as well. Uh, to do basic research uh, and clinical trials as well later on. Um, so $40 billion is a lot of money to be mm-hmm. investing into our medicines. And if you actually look at the last 210 drugs that were approved by the FDA, you'll see that all of them initiated with NIH funding. So who is driving the innovation um, and mm-hmm. it's really the public, and it's uh, the public, it's public money, um, and we're driving the riskiest research, right? So things right. like vaccines, that is going to be a topic, uh, certainly as well, that is covered here, because um, drugs like vaccines and antibiotics as well um, mm-hmm. are not seen to um, provide a massive financial incentive to a system like um, the biomedical R&D system that we have currently because you take a vaccine and then you don't have to take another one. <laughs> so there's not a huge benefit, right, financially. And the same with antibiotics. I see. So in other words, uh, you know, if you have something that works too well uh, or you only need to take it once, uh, that's wonderful for humanity and not great for the corporation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds brutal, but... Um, mm. But it's fact, and I think because these corporations are responsible to their shareholders, their duty is to their shareholders. And so right. if their duty is to their shareholders, it is not also to the public, um, as much as messaging might suggest otherwise. So, um, yes, they do invest money, um, but there's not a lot of transparency around how much is, is invested and how much they're spending on um uh, on an R&D versus marketing and sales. And it's estimated that, you know, compared to what they're spending on R&D, it's about uh, two to four times uh, more on uh, sales and marketing. And for essential medicines, if you need insulin, you know that you need insulin, your doctor right. will tell you. You don't need a marketing 
plant. So that's another that's right. <laughs> another area that you know, in terms of uh, part right. of this this problem and and how it's failing people all over the world. That's an incredible uh, distinction here. The amount of money paid just to increase corporate outreach or mar- increase market share through marketing, mm-hmm. as opposed to the money put into solving the you know the disease you know curing yeah. the disease or and you can the also disease. look at the stock market right now like uh, you know mm-hmm. who who is making money um right. and where are the shares going where it's i know it's been all over the place recently with the the current concerns but um sure this is something that that is very clear if you follow uh follow big pharma um right. so yeah and- so just sort of this is not something new at least to people in in this space, but it's something that I think COVID has really, as I said, like shed light on for a lot of people right now. They're saying like, wait a second, this system is clearly not functioning uh, in the way that it should, which would be uh, putting people in the center um, and needs in the center rather than having profit in the center. Um, And what's I think extraordinary about this unique moment in history is it's clear that um, people of all ages, ethnicities, backgrounds, levels of status, wealth, you know, um, have been impacted. Um, you know, from my own prime minister in the UK, you know, and even right. Prince Charles. Um, I mean, there's also a disparity here too that, um, you know, basketball players and princes and prime ministers are able to get access to tests more quickly. Um, indeed, I saw um, a tiger has been tested, which is a whole other issue for coronavirus wow. before no some kidding. of the people, um, you know, who 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 rightly deserve access um, uh, as well. So a tiger has been tested. <laughs> is this someone's pet tiger or uh, no, it was in a zoo. But this is this is okay. something that just appeared this week. Um I, I mean, the, the disease is a zoonotic disease, meaning, you know, it obviously had its um, origins in, in, in an animal and um, has sort right. of jumped to humans. But, uh, yeah, that was, that's the sort of unusual first case, and I, I hope uh, not to hear too, yeah. too much more about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right, but this is, but again, your, your point is well taken. Like, in a way, there is something egalitarian about the fact that even a prime minister who, if I understand it right, his first way of dealing with the virus in the UK was to mm. talk about herd immunity, mm-hmm. herd immunity, which Correct. was disastrous. At least he also then got sick. Yeah, I mean, he's living, However, <laughs> yeah, living yeah. by, you know, those principles uh, as a result, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he will, get, he will get the best care and is getting the best care. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we're lucky in the UK that NHS is, is a, a pretty extraordinary... Uh, service and I know a lot of the public health systems around the world have since been modeled after it and right. you know he's been treated uh, like anybody else uh, that's right so um, yeah uh, mm-hmm. and I understand he's he's out of intensive care now as well but, that's, right. Um, that's right but yes the point more broadly is um, it, it shows how interconnected we all are as a human race and we have one planet um, yes. and I think what it's also shown us is is how connected all of our health systems are, right? Uh, and how vulnerable they are as well, some more than others. And I think the U.S. Um, more than ever, and I saw there's been over, I think, 100,000 deaths today um, across the world now. So it's, mm. it's pretty extraordinary um, right. and devastating. Um, but it is a, it is a moment not just for reflection, but I think it is a movement, a moment for, for great action and uh, solidarity, I hope, um, across the world. You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. You've got the plague. Guess what? I got a fever. You've got the plague. You've got the plague. 
it certainly doesn't seem that the market will solve the pandemic. And there are libertarians who will say there's a market solution for everything. But sure. I think we're seeing uh, we're seeing things like com competitive bidding for ventilators between states and things like this, which uh, fly in the face of uh, reason. And, and I think my understanding is also um, certain products like masks have not been available mm -hmm. or been um, not been available to across borders um, in the mm -hmm. way that we might expect in, in both directions. And um, yeah, I think it's just showing as well that you know the health outcomes of the majority will really be dictated by the floor of the healthcare system and not not the ceiling, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I think that's the challenge in a country like this where there is uh, no universal healthcare. Right. And, um, you know, people also, um, you know, they're maybe afraid to uh, access services because of um, immigration status, for example. Um, and and that doesn't that does not serve any of us ultimately. No. Um, and well, there's an attempt to separate. If you want to make a distinction, and you're you're quite well off, and you've got your health care covered. Yeah. Uh, it, the problem with a virus is a virus doesn't respect class boundaries necessarily, uh, and uh, doesn't go by that market system's logic. And so uh, we, we find ourselves a little more vulnerable as a body politic to the spreading of, the, of this disease because we are not treating the entire body equally. Exactly, <laughs> and, uh, exactly. Yeah. And I think to your point about mark free markets, I mean, this mm. is the other piece. Um, you know, the, bio, the, this is not a free market. You just have to look at the three large pharmaceutical giants, Eli Lilly, Sanofi, um, and Novo Nordisk. They are the they control over ninety percent of the global market of insulin, right? Hmm. And um, and we've seen over the last decade in the U.S. the price of insulin increase in lockstep. This is um, anti antitrust behavior. This is technically illegal, uh, and it shows that it's not. You know, we in 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 our movement, we talk about them as, you know, it's the insulin cartel. It's cartel-like behavior, um, and it's it is indicative of of uh, a market that is not exactly free. Um, mm -hmm. And you see in other parts of the world, you know, where I come from, uh, in the UK and 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 across Europe, you'll see the price of insulin just you know being close to. Uh, 15 or 20 dollars a vial and yet here you can see it in the hundreds of dollars um, wow. and people are rationing insulin um, in in 2020 um, right. in, as you might see in in a poorer country it's un unacceptable and unethical of course and totally immoral um, right and you're talking about a cartel and as you stated earlier a lot of these companies their most risky uh, research efforts are underwritten by the taxpayer. Well, so there's yeah. public risk and private gain. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, mm. uh, going back to insulin again, like this was developed in 1922 uh, <laughs> at, on a university campus with public funds, the University of Toronto, Banting and Best, who went on to win the Nobel Prize uh, for this great gift to humanity. Um, you know, there's this great um, headline in the Toronto Star that sort of said, no deaths from diabetes. And this was the first couple of months after they first uh, essentially began using it in, in humans. Uh, and it was the first time in history that people had not died from diabetes, basically, uh, right. when they would have been expected to amongst this population. Um, and yet, if the system were working, tell me why nearly 100 years yet later we're coming up to the 100th anniversary of this life-saving drug. Why one in two people who need access do not, cannot afford right. it or do not have access to it nearly 100 years later. Um, right. That it, is... It boggles the Yeah, mind. and at the same time, those corporations, um, it's not just, it's not against them making some money, it's that they're uh, price gouging people out of their lives. Um, right. And... And you can't say that, you know, any of these temporary um, solutions 
you know, they, they, <laughs> they, they're really just sort of band-aid, um, mm-hmm. band-aids to, to this, this huge, this huge issue, which at the core is, you know, the subject of, of the plague that we're talking about today, right? This profit-driven right. model. Um, right. Well, I mean, it seems you're describing a level of dysfunction that obviously is backed up by very powerful folks who have a lot of influence over the continuation of this structure and this way of treating disease and providing medicine. Yeah. But it actually make us makes us less healthy as a society, even when there isn't a pandemic. The yeah. pandemic helps us to really see the problem, but the problem was already there. Sad, sadly, yes. And I think, it, you mm-hmm. know, it starts at the top right now, too, even though this has been a, a, an issue that, you know, different um, administrations of different ilks um, have mm-hmm. tried to tackle um, you know, the, Alex Azar, the head of health and the health, health and human services here in the U.S., um, the health and human service secretary, he was the former CEO of Eli Lilly, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of those three insulin um, manufacturers, corporations, big pharma, um, right. and he oversaw that price increase. Um, of 300% over 10 years. So, hmm. you know, uh, is it the fox, you know, attending right. to the, the hen house? Um, <laughs> right. You know, it, it you know, the that fox is... The fox is the, is the minister of the hen house department. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. certainly not the first person to say that um, mm-hmm. or recognize that. Uh, but I think, you know, and also knowing that for every Congress person on Capitol Hill, there are two pharma lobbyist that's another system that probably should have its own um podcast uh, a plague mm-hmm. of lobbyists <laughs> <laughs> right um, in fact isn't that the name for the plural of lobbyists i mean it, sh- it should a be a plague of lobbyists right yeah uh-huh. yeah exactly exactly um certainly yeah. certainly when it comes to some of these um these major corporate interests i think so um right. Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, we were talking about the challenges and some of the other symptoms like we're seeing now um, to sort of break it down a bit. Like um, we've been investing into all sorts of research, obviously, um, as I mentioned, via the NIH. Um, but some of the other challenges is a system and why we haven't had drugs uh, for the Ebola epidemic or the Zika epidemic in time is because they've, for Ebola, for example, the serum sat on the shelf uh, for 10 years until there was this urgency and suddenly governments were pouring millions of dollars into uh, a solution instead of investing in advance. And we could have saved, um, you know, nearly 14,000 lives just from, from, from that moment. The current system fails to invest in things like neglected diseases, neglected tropical diseases, but neglected diseases, um, obviously Zika and Ebola would have sort of fitted into that category, but um, diseases that mostly affect the most vulnerable, you can look on the WHO, the World Health Organization has a list, Um, but because there's no perceived to be a financial incentive because these are the poorest of the poor, we could tomorrow and very quickly um, find um, cures and treatments for a lot of these diseases, but because of the existing system, they are left behind. Right, right. And it's uh, a system that keeps itself going through influence, through lobbying, Mm -hmm. but one might argue that it's not sustainable in terms of public health. Yeah. It, It keeps it, it does sustain itself by forcing itself upon us perpetually yeah and these corporations are investing some money and they may be taking Mm -hmm. um some of these compounds through certain levels of clinical trials but um not we must not forget that of that 40 billion annually that i mentioned in you know just in the nih alone in canada it's about a billion from the canadian institutes of health research um Mm -hmm. and many other governments around the world um doing their own uh publicly funded research. Um, I think in the US, about one third of that 40 billion is actually clinical, spent on clinical trials. 
Um, right. So it's not just the early research, right, which is what some people perceive, but um, they're doing the early research, but they're also taking it to a point where then you can patent and license it and then get it get scooped up by big pharma. And then, you know, they'll come through and say, oh, X corporation has the you know, most promising candidate for this vaccine. And you think, well, okay, wait a second. Yes, and this is good for humanity, but let's not ignore the fact that <laughs> there's millions of dollars of public money. We've already paid for mm. a big chunk of it. And if mm -hmm. I were a private investor and had millions, if not billions of dollars, I would expect a return on that investment, right? Um, right. And as the public, you should expect that in terms of having access to these, these life-saving drugs. Oh, for sure. And, and uh, you mentioned before the aspect of being prepared in advance and being aware that we are going to have pandemics, for mm -hmm. example. We're going to have health crises of various kinds, mm -hmm. um, including not pandemics, but something like diabetes that needs regular mm -hmm. treatment and supplies. And yet there's something that's not as profit. It's not as profitable to have a great reserve of the equipment we need but it's what we need. It just happens to not be profitable to have many, many uh, masks and many protective kits ready for when they're needed and store them and preserve them. Um, I, I know this is not exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about vaccines, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it struck me that it would make sense to have a lot of ventilators and not suddenly be making, trying to manufacture and distribute them at the last minute um, as people are already dying. But that does require a physical plant and investment, and it's not profitable. Yeah, I think I think also, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, there was a number of individuals in the administration prior to 2016 who mm -hmm. were focused entirely on epidemic or pandemic preparedness. Um, mm -hmm. And those roles disappeared um, with the current administration, a lot of them. So... Um, and I think a lot of signals were made um, that that action should have been taken earlier. Not not all countries are were going to end up in the situation like the U.S. currently is right now, um, right. as well. So um, yeah, it's it's a challenge. But I will say it's um, you know it's as we see these numbers loom and you know it is it's heavy. Um, I will say that it's not, there is hope basically, right. Um, right. because while, you know, I've just spent the last number of minutes talking about all these, these challenges, um, you know, one that is really critical to this pandemic as well, which is, um, we, we are in some ways lucky that this was not an, an antimicrobial resistant bacteria, um, mm -hmm. cause that would have been even more terrifying. Uh, because we currently don't have, um, they're not really, there has hardly been, there's been one recent candidate, um, a new antibiotic. Uh, we haven't seen one with the current system in 30 years. Mm -hmm. And we know, just looking at the data, that um, increasingly all around the world we're seeing more and more anti antibiotic um, resistance or antibiotic resistance in general, right? Um, right. Or, um, because of the, the hormones we're using and in mass farming and all of these other reasons that I won't go into. But mm -hmm. I think that that is one of the biggest failures and most urgent failures that mean to be addressed because I think it's actually uh, more concerning in a short term than even climate change. Climate change is, is very close, but this is even closer. Um, mm -hmm. we, need, we need this result. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of groups right now, again, recognizing that it's all public money, um, in the US and through the WHO who are driving and spearheading uh, this alternative research where, where it's all focused, uh, publicly funded and going towards this research. Um, but uh, so there are models already in place um, that are alternative to our current system who mm -hmm. are looking at these failures of the uh, profit-driven profit-driven model, it's <laughs> a mouthful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and for example, um, DNDI, which is this group called the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiatives, that actually kind of came out of um, Doctors Without Borders because they recognised that they were going into a lot of uh, countries and communities where there just weren't even drugs to treat 
the diseases that people were suffering from. And so they decided, well, look, <laughs> this isn't being tackled by the current system. We're just going to do it ourselves. Um, and and so that that is where that came from. And they've been able to prove like, and develop new drugs from sort of a compound all the way through to market in a fraction of the price uh, compared to... Um, the, the current model and then you know other um, models like uh, prize funds which Bernie Sanders talks about um, there's uh, pool models of uh, patent pooling where um, this helps it gets this getting a bit more technical but there's all these different mm -hmm. ways basically um, that we could implement and are implementing so it's not sort of like oh we have to reimagine uh, mm. what this could look like there are there are options for us. And I think what we need is for um, for the public to begin to recognize that the system isn't working for people. It's working very well for shareholders. But right. um, we have the power and, uh, and influence, especially with our votes, um, to be able to change, to be able to change the system and ask for more given that we are actually funding most of this critical research and development in the first place. Right. Now, what is a price fund? Like, a, essentially, a prize. So if you get first past the post, you win the prize, essentially. of mm -hmm. um, It depends what that could be. Um, but it, it's to incentivize research in a certain direction, right? So you say, I want, uh, we decide that we want to do more research into sickle cell. And the person who comes up first or the group or the collaborative uh, labs um, come together to achieve what they're looking for, the new, uh, a new treatment, for example. Um, mm -hmm. whoever, gets that, whoever gets there first will, will be you know, granted X number of millions of dollars. Um, mm -hmm. There's also like essentially push mechanisms, which is the, the reverse. So it's like grants up front, right? Um, so saying, okay, that people can apply for a grant uh, to do coronavirus work. That's more um, uh, similar to what happens now. Um, mm -hmm. And then obviously the pooling is the, the patent pooling. It, it's, uh, there's a group called the Medicines Patent Pool. And um, rather than making it very difficult for, say, uh, generic companies to have to... Um, get through a number of different patents because there's a, usually for one drug there's many many different patents and it can be a very difficult to um to basically find out <laughs> who you need to talk to in order to get the permission to make the generic version this kind of thing uh, right. by having a patent pool it means that technically they can license from this one um one group and uh, have one license and they know that they're kind of all set and it just makes innovation faster right um what i think is interesting here is that there's ways to incentivize mm -hmm. uh the the kind of research and invention that we need it's not like um if you go away from the corporate profit-based model you don't incentivize anyone yeah you can absolutely direct resources without the middleman yeah towards what you need which is the lab work and the very difficult uh, work. Yeah. It reminds me of, and I got to live under the NHS for one year mm. when I was te teaching at the University of Birmingham, and I found it to be very functional <laughs> back then. Yeah. Um, and what I was interesting is to know that within the NHS, a, a, a public system, there was incentivization for the physicians to increase the health of their patients. And they did get bonuses based on these things. So it's not like you, you're, it's some kind of, um, uh, model that doesn't reward success. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, I think that's a false, that's a straw man argument against mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, public efforts, right? And non-profit. You can, you can reward people for doing the right things. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't have to get filtered through a shareholder stockholder. Yeah, system. exactly. And yeah. I think, I mean, there's mm -hmm. lots of different, um, there's do many different ways. And actually, uh, mm -hmm. the organization, um, the Iron University's Allied for Essential Medicines, UAEM, uh, mm -hmm. Back in 2016, we were like, okay, so what alternative model alternative models exist? Um, 
that is some in, in some way different to the current system according to different criteria like those push pull pool models that they are open that they are collaborative so that you know open source sharing um, they're transparent um, and we because there wasn't sort of like a textbook on like oh <laughs> alternative models of R&D <laughs> we decided essentially that we would create one um, and you can find that it's if you look it up it's just called altreroot.com um, and we found 81 different types of proposed or existing models to the current system. Um, and some are much more radical, much more innovative, and some are sort of slight tweaks to the current system, but, you know, generally the same. And obviously we were looking for some to try and sort of categorize um, different options. And that was picked up by, uh, included in, in the UN's high-level report on on access to medicine so sort of certain recommendations within there and i think that that is where we're going the vision you know pharmaceutical corporations are going to exist um but it's about about shifting shifting the incentives i think um mm -hmm. to to make right. sure that they're needs driven they're people-centered um and and you know these systems are created by human beings they're not laws of nature and so there's right. no reason why um why that can't change this is wonderful you know what we're i think maybe what we should do now is take a brief break sure. and then come back and talk about some more activist and social campaign models uh to try to reform this system uh, using our medical metaphor these are treatments or cures for this plague right yes. um along with the alternative models you just mentioned so we'll take a brief break, come back and talk about how to vaccinate ourselves from this horrible plague that Merit has uh, identified for us. You, 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 you got the plague. So, Bert, uh, you already were talking about some of the ways to deal with this problem with these alternative models mm -hmm. and spreading the awareness of them. And again, uh, thank you for mentioning the website where uh, the where people can the URL where people can find that. Can you mention? Would you mention that again? Yeah. Uh, so, um, generally, the organization is uaem.org, so you can take great. a look there. But um, the particular. Uh, report uh, uh, that I mentioned. It's altreroot, so A-L-T-R-E-R-O-U-T-E dot -E com. But you can find it on mm -hmm. the UAM website too. Wonderful. And um, now I, I know that we are both involved in a certain campaign. This may not be the only thing you would want to talk about, but uh, talking about the Salka teams. Yes. And uh, maybe uh, you could just let us know about that one. Absolutely. So um, a few weeks ago, as I think Certainly here in the U.S., um, people were beginning to go into isolation to some degree and the sort of physical distancing or social distancing. Um, uh, we began, we were talking with um, some friends, uh, some folks from uh, the Center for Artistic Activism about, okay, what are we going to do in this new moment where you can't organize in traditional ways? You know, we're not going to be able to have a massive, you know, march on Washington. You can't have a million people out there. Mm -hmm. You can't ha you can't be um, doing the traditional things that we might um, do to to um, urge people in uh, positions of power to to pay attention. Um, right. So, and I think people are feeling quite hopeless and anxious about what is coming, and so we thought, well, what do we, what do we do best? <laughs> and we have come together to um, these two quite different organizations in some ways um, and have built this campaign. It's really actually a global advocacy innovation lab. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we, uh, in the same way that like scientists are going to be in their labs, university labs primarily, um, doing the research for the vaccine or for these diagnostics and treatments. We are going to be in our lab and, um, and we have invited people to join us to test um, a number of creative actions around a common goal, which our goal is essentially quite clear that all publicly funded um, diagnostics, treatments and the eventual vaccine 
for COVID-19 be um, available to all, sustainably priced, which I can explain, um, mm -hmm. and free at the point of delivery. Right. Um, so all of all of us say this campaign uh, has just come together in the last couple of weeks um, as part of this uh, Global Innovation Lab. And the idea is we will be hopefully um, learning a lot about what is working to pressure universities, to pressure governments, to, to pressure pharmaceutical corporations to uh, ensure that when the vaccine in particular comes, that really it is not just, uh, you know, an America first or a Germany first or a UK first model. It's, it's available for everyone, everywhere. Um, the sustainably priced piece um, means that basically, you know, as I mentioned, the, we've already been paying for this research in the first place, but that um, pharmaceutical corporations are not overcharging governments on the back end that we don't see, even if when you go to get your vaccine, it is free at the point of delivery. So we want all of those those three things that I mentioned. Right. Um, and what's exciting is we put out a call. We said, okay, over the next four months, we're going to meet weekly. Um, we're going to give a training in creative um, activism and um, ground this in, in the HIV AIDS movement and learnings from the access to medicines movement and try to see if we can bring people from around the world together to think about how we might tackle this at a local or national level but all come together uh, globally really um, as much as possible to think nice. about this issue because the solution is going to be a global one and collaboration and solidarity at this moment I think couldn't be more important. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I, I love the idea that it's a lab as well as like, yes, this is an activist campaign that you and I and many of our friends are involved in now. Um, yeah. Named after the wonderful Jonas Salk, who gave away the polio vaccine for free. And that's what we need, you know, that kind of behavior in the world. Um, but uh, that it's also a lab for finding techniques for activism. Yeah. And because, you know, we need praxis. We need that dialogue between theory and practice as an international movement to find out, obviously, the way you test a vaccine to see what works as a vaccine. Yeah. You need to find out what works as an activist campaign. In, 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 this, new, in this new world that we're living in. Um, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think also, more than anything, like I should mention, like, we... We have over 600 people on the list. We have 300 current like participants who like applied basically uh, in writing uh, from 29 different countries, um, yes. and we're meeting uh, we're meeting weekly. There, you're able to meet in their sort of local groups virtually as well, of course. Um, but it's exciting, and I think you know there's a lot of heaviness, and and um, people are very anxious. Um, generally, and, and we're hoping that this is also going to be a, a, a joyful place and a place where people can come together to be creative, to to take a breath uh, and think about having having some agency in this thing that is happening to us, right? It's it, having some opportunity to kind of fight back and take control and, and think about maybe we can actually have a little bit of fun in, in the process of doing good as I well. I hope so. Yes, we need that as well. That is part of what makes the movement sustainable. Exactly. Right? exactly. Uh, and some of it, even though we're dealing with serious issues, to be playful and to engage in serious play is sometimes me medicinal. Yes. Yeah. Laughter is the best medicine yeah. <laughs> for yes, sure. Yes. And I think, um, yeah, so I think trying to bring that and knowing that, you know, we have this network of, uh, you know, about one third of um, that 300 participants are, our students from from the UAM network who who know their stuff on in terms of access to medicine and a lot of the other folks are coming from artistic backgrounds and I think it's just such a um, cool opportunity to to grow the movement and have people who are feeling frustrated and uh, wanting to to take action to to learn about this issue because we need everyone thinking about this and I I, I think we have an opportunity to to really push for 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 a system that 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 really does favor people it's high time uh that it did absolutely and uh 
it's a great way to open up the larger issue. Like when we take action and say ahead of time, because it will take a while for the vaccine to be invented. So starting a social movement, creative campaign around the world now to raise the issue of it should be, you know, free yeah. at the point of Yeah, delivery. free, sustainably priced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, accessible to all. Yeah, and I should mention that if people want to learn more, the uh, yes. website is just freethevaccine.org. Um, you can learn yes. about us and our Salk teams, um, as you mentioned, named after Jonas yeah. Salk, who who uh, believed um, that uh, there shouldn't be patents on things like vaccines. Um, <laughs> right. So following in his footsteps, um, hopefully. But also, I yes. mean, there's been a few interesting questions, actually, from folks who are like, oh, well, you know, I've heard Bill Gates uh, is doing some research and we've heard this company or this corporation and this university yeah, definitely. There's a lot of things that are happening. Um, but um, what we'll be pushing for is to make sure that uh, it's not just the headline that people read, that we, we're able to actually see, okay, these are the real commitments that this individual or this corporation is making publicly. Like we commit to those, those three things that we mentioned, that this is, this is something that will be accessible and available to all um, uh, at a price that that is sustainable for for governments um, as well, right. um, and I think you know if if there are groups who are um, more that way inclined, then great, we will we will hail them as uh, people leading mm-hmm. uh, and supporting, um, and we hope there will right. be. Um, but until yes. sort of like we see that in writing, <laughs> you know, legal documents <laughs> and the like, um, I think none of these groups historically have been moved without public pressure. So I think, as you said, getting ahead of the curve, as it were, um, to make sure that, that these, these demands are uh, up front and center, um, right. I think is, is key. Yes. Freethevaccine.org. Yes. Yes. And and this is how anyone listening can tr- sign in. Yeah. Sign up, so you can, you can sign up. Yeah. Learn about what we're doing. So we're going to mm-hmm. send out, I think, more or less weekly updates um, on sort mm-hmm. of what's going on and some um, learnings as, as we go. Like um, if we're if we're advancing in certain areas um, in terms of advocacy and creative ideas. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I think it should be pretty fun to hear from what's going on in different parts of the world around this issue. And uh, who knows? We are hoping, um, you know, we don't know yet. Uh, this plan is for the next four months. Um, but we we may end up having a second round and, and a new ho- cohort of, of folks. Um, we're sort of self-funding this right now. Um, <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll see, and we'd love to, you know, if there's other groups and organizations who might be interested uh, in partnering or getting involved, like, we'd love to hear from them as well. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, the more the merrier at this point, you know, we, we need everyone. Yes, and it's through coalition that we'll really build a movement. Exactly. And this is one campaign to lead to the another, another yes. to lead to another. We're trying to get a vaccine for this pandemic, and we would also like to vaccinate our societies against uh, corporate and for-profit systems of this type. In yeah, medicine. exactly. <laughs> so I think you know this is just one example of the of you know the, this bigger picture that you sort of touched on um, right. today. Uh, but really, you know. The ask is obvious. It really should be all publicly funded medicines should be affordable to the public. It's it's not mm-hmm. in itself a radical idea. No, it's it's only radical because the system is radically out of joint. Exactly. Uh, it's not. You know. Mm-hmm. It's that's why it seems radical. <laughs> yeah. I should say. Exactly. Merit, um, thank you so much for laying this whole issue out, both the the problem itself and what you and so so many other wonderful organizations and activists are doing to deal with it. Um, I was wondering, as, as you already know, we do have a little uh, tradition, if I may say, for a new podcast of offering <laughs> our guests to share something creative that they like. And um, as someone who was also thinking about being a stage actor, <laughs> you had a wonderful suggestion. So um, my, my family's from Wales. My parents are back mm-hmm. home in, in North Wales. And uh, I thought I might read 
um, sort of in honor of my homeland, uh, a piece by Dylan Thomas called Do mm. Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Wonderful. And, and a call for us as we face these difficult times as well. Exactly. It's a wonderful choice. Yes, I think mm-hmm. it is somewhat poignant now. So I will do my best. I, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. But thank you for the invitation. Let's see. You, 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 you've got the play. You've got, you've got the play. So this is Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by, by Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright, their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learn too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Thank you. It's a call to arms for all of us at this difficult and grim time. Indeed. But there's a lot of wonderful work being done. A lot of wonderful work. Merit, thank you so much for joining us on The Plague and for your work against the plagues of our time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being a, an ally and, uh, and supporter in, in all of this. We, we need you. Uh, thank you so much. And I look forward to working on, on a SOC team. Yes. Uh, this is going to be a, a wonderful campaign. Thank you for being a part, and uh, I will see you in the lab. Absolutely. I'll see you in the lab. I'll see you in the Zoom meetings, and yeah. we're going to try a lot of different techniques out, and we're going to move this thing forward. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Thank you so much, Marith, and um, we will see you again soon. Thank you. Take care. Be well. You've been listening to The Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, and for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay.